Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. All right, already this week is this week's chapter of Pirkei Avot is the third one, and what I would like to do is we're going to study the first part of the seventh Mishnah today, and the Mishnah begins as follows: Rabbi Elazar Ish Bartusa Omer. Rabbi Elazar of Bartusa would say. Ten lo mishelo, give him what is his. Sheata v'shelach shelo, for you and what is yours are actually his. The chaim v'david Omer, and you could see regarding King David, it says, "Kimimcha hakol umiyadcha nasanu lach." It says this in the Book of Chronicles. Everything comes from you, and from your hand we have given to you. Meaning everything we have obviously belongs to Hashem, and even that which we give to God is really God's to begin with, right? Makes sense. So the basic message of this Mishnah is that the Jewish view, the perspective of charity, we think we're giving our hard-earned money, which we are, but the Mishnah is emphasizing a very important aspect because, as we know, Judaism. Has a very unique view on charity. That even if you look at the Jewish term for charity, tzedakah, has a very different meaning than the word charity. Tzedakah means justice and righteousness. When a Jew gives tzedakah, they don't feel that they're being charitable, which implies an undeserved gift that is extended solely as a result of my generosity as the giver. Rather, it is the just. And the right thing for a person to do, and this is the purpose for which God has given us money to begin with. Our possessions that we own is for the sake of giving, of caring, of sharing, of contributing to the world. So, if I was a banker and somebody deposited money with me to give a certain sum to someone else, is it an act of charity on my part to do so? Or am I just doing my job, my duty as the banker? Which one is it? Right? You know, there's a Hasidic story that perhaps could illustrate this idea. The Apti Rebbe, Rabbi Avram Yeshua Heschel of Apt, lived nearly two centuries ago. He had a follower who was a very wealthy man. And one day, this wealthy fellow received a letter from his Rebbe requesting him to give two hundred rubles. To save a fellow Jew from financial ruin. Now, the wealthy Chassid regularly contributed to the Rebbe's charitable activities, but this particular request arrived at a, let's call it a financially inconvenient time, and it had a request for a large amount, two hundred bucks, two hundred rubles was a, a large sum. So, after a little bit of deliberation, the man decided he was not going to respond to this request. He ignored it. Well, short time passed, and this man's, this wealthy fellow's fortunes began to fall. One business venture failed, and uh, another one failed badly, and things were going from bad to worse. And before he knew it, he was losing everything. And he realized that the sudden loss of his fortune was certainly not unrelated to the request of his rebbe. So, what do you do? Go straight to the rabbi, 
And he comes begging, pleading. He says, was my sin so terrible to deserve such a severe punishment? Is it, is it even right to punish me without warning? If you would have told me how important it is to give these 200 rubles, I would have carried out your instructions immediately. And the rabbi looks at him and says, you haven't been punished at all. What do you mean and not punished? He lost all his wealth. So the rabbi explained to him, nothing that was yours was taken from you. You see, when my soul came down to earth, a certain amount of material possession was allotted to me for use in my work. However, my days and nights are taken up with prayer, with studying, with teaching Torah, with all the different things a rabbi does, counseling his congregants who come to him for guidance, all the different things, you know. There's no time for me as a rabbi to manage the the finances. So these resources were placed in the trust of a number of bankers, of people who would recognize their duty to support my work. And when you failed out to carry your role, my account with you was transferred to another banker. That's all. It wasn't a punishment. You weren't available to do the job. So someone else got to do the job. And I think that story illustrates the idea that this mission is teaching us. That the funds we have are not ours to begin with. God entrusts them with us. And it's our job to make and do the most with them. Many of the commentaries on this mission are right that this applies not only to charity, but actually to all mitzvahs. When we do something for God, and this entails a certain expense on our part, for example, you want to buy mezuzahs for your home. We were talking about mezuzahs earlier this week, right? There's a cost to it. Although oftentimes, you know, people make it into such a big deal. Oh my, it's so expensive. Did they say it's so expensive when they purchased a more expensive car. You know, a mezuzah probably cost, I I hate to minimize it like that, but probably less than one time filling up the petrol tank in your car. So it's certainly a matter of priorities. But let's put that aside. What about kosher food? It costs you more. For somebody not to work on Shabbos, although I don't know if that challenge is, is, you know, I don't want to undermine the challenge if, if people do have that today, but it's certainly not the same as it was once upon a time in the past, people really struggled with observing Shabbos. They sometimes wouldn't have work otherwise. So what is the reminder from King David that this mission is telling us? That everything comes from you, from Hashem. And from your hand, from Hashem, it was given to each of us. So this is a powerful and profound insight in the purpose of what this mission is illustrating, that the money coming to us, the money that we own, the possessions we have, are here for us to fulfill God's will in this world. Yet, as the Mishnah implies, God derives pleasure from our acts of charity, from the mitzvahs that we perform. Great commentator Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar, he compares this to a person who invites a guest into his home. And is pleased when the guest pours them a cup of their own wine. Anything we offer to God is what God has granted us. Yet God, God's good feelings are aroused towards us when we serve Him His own wine. That's the idea that that Rabbi Chaim Abenatar is saying. Is that each of us are fulfilling the divine purpose in this world. And 
Not only does God thank us and reward us for what we do with his money, but he even allows us to benefit from it as well. And Rabbeinu Yonah, very famous commentator on the Mishnah, those who join my Dirshu classes, we study the commentary of Rabbeinu Yonah. And he points out that in the verse, this verse quoting David HaMalach, there's a certain inconsistency. He says, everything comes from you. And from your hand we have given to you. God gives us everything. But not everything is given back. We also enjoy the gifts that God bestows upon us. God gives each of us gifts in our life. And yes, we give back. Right? It's important that we give back to God. That's, that's what the mission is telling us. But it's saying everything we have comes from God. But we don't have to give everything we own to God. God accepts that we can also enjoy it. God wants us to enjoy it. We're partners of God. We're in this business with Hashem. Okay, so just to share with you another insight here. This is, you know, like I said, this is the basic element, the basic meaning and understanding of our Mishnah. But everything in Torah has many layers of meaning. This is, we, we, when we look at this Mishnah, you know, every word is exact. And the Talmud often learns numerous laws from the precise wording of a Mishnah. So in this Mishnah, Rabbi Elazar, the author of it, could have said, give him what's his, for all that's yours is his. And instead, he interjects one more point. He says, for you and what's yours is his. The point about charity is that by stating that all we have, we got from God. But what is added by also emphasizing that our own existence is also from God? Why does he emphasize that point? That even our own existence is from God? You know, the words of Torah aren't just deep. They're also multifaceted. In the words of the Talmud, the Gemara in Tractate Sanhedrin says, quoting a verse from the book of Jeremiah, My words are like fire, says Hashem. And like a hammer that shatters a stone. As the hammer explodes many particles, so does one verse, one verse of Torah, diverge so many multiple meanings and insights. So in that spirit, I want to try to look at a few different perspectives by different sages and commentaries on the deeper significance of this Mishnah which I'm sure you'll appreciate and learn from what we're discussing here. The Mishnah wants to emphasize that we're not just talking about financial expenditures, but about anything that we do for God. It's not just our money that's a gift from God, but everything we have, including our very existence. We realize, thank God, that's why every morning we wake up, we say, Modani, we thank God for our existence. So one of the commentators says, if God has graced you with any quality or ability, whatever it might be, you have wealth. By the way, you want to look at the word wealth. What's the Hebrew word for wealth? Ashir, right? Look at the word ashir, which means wealthy. The word ashir is made up of four letters. Ayin, shin, yud, resh. So ashir is not only financial wealth, because if you look at the acronym, the meaning of these letters, ayin means my eyes. The shin is shinayim, my teeth. The yud is yadayim, my hands. 
And the resh is raglayim, my feet. Or you could say rosh, the head. So again, the idea is that everything I possess, whether it is financial wealth, or my physical strength, or my wisdom. Do you have a good memory? Do you have a beautiful voice? Are you musical? Whatever talent, ability we have, it's a present by God that we have to utilize for a godly purpose. Each of us has our mission and purpose in this world. Somebody once shared with me, even the commandment, Lo Tignov, not to steal, there's one of the commentators that says, don't steal, don't deprive the world of your talents and abilities, what you can share with the world. So this Mishnah is emphasizing that the material resources that we possess, whether it's our talents, our abilities, our finance, our health, it's a gift from God. As my mother of blessed memory used to say, yesterday's history, tomorrow's a mystery. But today's a gift of Hashem, and that's why it's called the present. So everything that we own is a gift from God. All the resources and circumstances over which we have an influence. Hasidus calls it our chilek, our portion of the world. Is deeply connected with our deepest, deepest self, with our soul. And so the Gemara and Tractate Chulim, Daf, um, Daf Tzadik Aleph tells us, very interesting insight. That is, it makes, you know, a very startling statement. The Mishnah tells us, the Gemara that tells us that when Yaakov risked his life in order, remember the story back in, if you go back to, um, the book of Bereshis, we're talking about Parshas Vayishlach. And where Yaakov risks his life in order to retrieve the, what's called Pachin Ketanin, those small jugs that he left behind. So the Talmud says, here we see that for the righteous, their possessions are dearer than their own body. What does it mean their possessions? He's going back for a few small things for a couple of jugs. But Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Arizal, explains, a person's material possessions actually contain spark of divine potential which are elevated when these possessions are utilized for a godly purpose. The righteous see these sparks of holiness as virtual extensions of their own souls because they understand that the fact that God has entrusted them with these possessions means that the redemption of these sparks they is, is, is essential for their soul's mission in this world. It's part of the purpose of why God put them in this world. So I think these are really profound messages and insights that we can learn from these Mishnah. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, again, so anyone who's following along, you can look in your Perky Avot. We're reading this week's chapter, chapter 3, Mishnah 7. And again, just to recap the insight, the point of the Mishnah, as Rabbi Lazar said, when you serve God, give Him from what comes from Him. Give Him what's His, because you and everything that you own belong to Him. And we quoted a verse from Chronicles, uh, from King David, that says, everything comes from you, Hashem, and everything that we give you is originally from your hand. That's the verse. And this Mishnah is imparting a profound truth about the concept of ownership. If everything we have really belongs to God, and really, this raises a question. 
are we truly doing anything of significance when we're giving tzedakah? If we give charity, it's not our money. It's not even ours. <laughs> so don't disappear yet. Sefer Chassidim, which is a mystical work by Rabbi Yehuda Chassid, a 12th century great scholar, he illustrates this point with an interesting scenario. He says, there was a Jew who was being compelled by the local ruler to unjustly pay a certain sum to someone. He was being, uh, what do you call it, extortioned? Right? And the only way to avoid this payment was for him to swear in court that he doesn't have the money. So he asked the local rabbinical authorities if he was permitted to do so. Can he swear that he doesn't have it? His logic was based on this Mishnah. Right? He's not swearing falsely because he considered the money not to be his own. Rather, it was a trust from God. And guess what? The rabbis responded that he cannot make such an oath because he would be swearing falsely. Now, hold on a second. If I analyze this Mishnah where I'm saying that everything I own belongs to Hashem, then it would seem that this person has a valid argument. Doesn't our Mishnah state that you and what's yours, it's all actually his? By using this logic, if I take something that's yours, then I'm not stealing. Right? When it was in your possession, it belonged to God. And now that it's in my possession, it still belongs to God. So it would seem that my action is no more than an act of stealing than if I were to have uh, moved something from one room to another, you know, inside the owner's home because it all belongs to God. By the same token, what significance is there to anything we do? If everything we have, including our brains and our talents and our abilities and our money and everything, it's not really ours. So what purpose are we, what purpose, what role are we really playing? So therefore I need to qual, I need to clarify this a bit. The deeper message in our Mishnah is not to say, ah, oh, nothing matters, everything belongs to Hashem. No, no. Hold on. That's the exact opposite of our Mishnah's insight. If the point was simply that everything belongs to God, the Mishnah should simply have stated, all that's yours is His. That's it. Or even more simply, everything is His. We, we, we write it in our books, Lashem God is the world and everything within it. But instead our Mishnah says, you and what's yours are all His. Why are we calling it yours if it's not really yours? <laughs> we said everything belongs to Hashem. What's the additional you that isn't already included in what's yours? You and what's yours. <laughs> what's the point? What's the Mishnah saying? But the Mishnah's teaching is something very profound. The you is the something more essential than any property we possess. It's our freedom of choice, which defines the very core of our being. And this too is His. Meaning that God chose to give us something that only He has. It was God's desire that our actions should have true significance. And therefore, God gave us the uniquely divine power of free choice. Each one of us is indispensable in God's eyes. From our divine ability to choose, we also realize that the legitimacy of our own ownership of what we possess. God chose to grant us the right of ownership. And that's why we shouldn't steal or take something because God didn't grant it to us. God gave it to us so that we should utilize the things that God granted us for a godly purpose. So that when we do so, we are truly giving to God. Because God gave it to us 
We are indispensable to God's plan. God wants us to use it for a godly purpose. So if the world is truly God's, then God can choose to define how His ownership of the world should be expressed. And God chose to define His ownership His of, of each of us, His creation. God created us. God put us in this world, meaning the world cannot exist without us. Right? So God grants us the authority, the free choice God wants us to do. God, you know, so if I take what's yours, then I am violating God's ownership by depriving you of the right of to choose what you want to do with you, with what's yours. So if God didn't give it to me, it's not mine. The idea is that I'm partners with God in creation of this world. God wants me to do and to fulfill my purpose by giving me these possessions. Yeah, sometimes we are not functioning any longer in an ability of, free, of, of freedom of choice. But for the most part, we are. That's the modus operandi. That's our... You know, our default mode, free choice. Okay, somebody asked about the author of this Mishnah. His name is Rabbi Elazar Bartosa. He's also known as Rabbi Elazar Bar Ben Yehuda. He lived in Israel in the beginning of the second century of the Common Era. And he was a disciple of Rabbi Yeshua Ben Hananiah, basically a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva. They lived there during the time of the Temple's destruction, Second Temple's destruction. You know, approximately 1900 years ago. And the Gemara relates a very interesting story about him that we could see that he actually exemplified the ideas that are expressed, that are taught in this Mishnah. Whenever the collectors of charity caught sight of Rabbi Elazar, they would hide themselves from him because he was in the habit of giving away everything he had. He would always give everything away. One day, he was going to the market to purchase a wedding dowry for his daughter. And I don't know how common it is today in our circles, but certainly many of our local indigenous neighbors practice wedding dowries. And in ancient Jewish custom, it was very prevalent. So when the collectors of tzedakah caught sight of him, they hid themselves. You know, this was the menschlich thing to do. Because he was so generous, he would have given away his daughter's wedding dowry. And when he caught eye of them, he started running and pursuing them. He said, I'm begging you, tell me, tell me what, you know, what you need. And they said, we're raising funds for the marriage of two orphans. So he said, I swear, they must take precedence over my daughter. And he took everything he had and he gave it to them. And now all he was left with was one zuz. That's it, one little bit. With that one zuz, he bought wheat, which he deposited in the granary. When his wife came home, she asked her daughter, what did your daddy bring home for you? What, what gift did you get for your wedding? And she says, oh, he has put in the granary all that he bought. And she went to open the door of the granary and she found that it was so full of wheat that the wheat protruded through the hinges of the door socket and the door were not open because of this. So the daughter went to the base Hamedris, to the study hall, and she said to her father, come and see what your friend has done for you. When the fa- when her father, when Rabbi Lezer came, he said, I swear that wealth should be to you as consecrated pop- property and you should have no more right to share in it than any poor person in Israel. 
So his points were, his points were that this which you have was a gift from God, obviously. Why does God give us this gift? God gives us this gift in order that you should be able to do with it more charity, more kind, more goodness. And it's a fa- fascinating story in the Gemara about how one is to, what one is to do with the wealth that they amass. I think it's a really, really great story about this great scholar, this great teacher, that he didn't just teach, but he lived by his teaching. Isn't that a profound insight? Now, just to think about the the most fundamental concept in any economic system is this concept of, of ownership, right? Purchases, loans, contracts, you know, there's so many tort laws that are, that, that are involved with mergers, acquisitions, with purchases, with everything involved. Research demonstrates that children as young as three or four have a sophisticated understanding of rules of ownership. I mean, I look around at my two-year-old daughter and she's already talking, it's mine. So what is ownership? Now, there's a very famous 18th century legal scholar, William Blackstone, and he presents a purely utilitarian view of ownership as something devised in order to avoid social unrest and to stimulate progress. If if you look at some of the claims that were happening, you know, if I look at the last two weeks, uh, the George Floyd demonstrations, and by all means, I believe that we have to fight the discrimination that exists, and certainly one should do whatever they can to, to fight against any forms of racism and discrimination. What I don't understand is what looting shops, what rioting and stealing property has anything to do with it. And that's basically William Blackstone's point is to say, well, if, you know, ownership is about to prevent that anarchy. Just to quote is, you know, the, I just want to give you a quick quote from the Gemara. But the Gemara tells us something very different. There's a more intrinsic bond between the owner and the object. And here is a quote from the Gemara Sota that we studied last month. The Gemara says, 40 days before a child was formed, a heavenly voice declares, this daughter of so-and-so will marry so-and-so. This house will belong to so-and-so. This field will belong to so-and-so. So the Gemara is telling us that the ownership of possessions is already predetermined before. That, it, that, that it's already decided in heaven. Now, I'm sure that you've heard this before, that your basheret has decided, it's preordained who your soulmate will be. You know, that's very much part of uh, the Jewish vernacular, this concept of the bashert. But less common, I think, is the knowledge that the Gemara is telling us there, the continuation. That it's not only about your bashert, but bashert is not only referring to your soulmate, but also to your possessions. What is going to belong to you? This, the Gemara tells us, also is predetermined. Why is it so important that every object that we'll ever own was assigned to us by heaven. So the Holy Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, explains that every physical object contains a mystical reality. And it's referred to in Jewish mysticism as that divine spark. You know, a godly energy 
that constitutes the essential being of that very object. Says the Baal Shem Tov, our task in life is to elevate these sparks from their state of obscurity and to reveal the inherent divinity within the physical. And how do we do this? When we use these objects, right, for a divine purpose, when we fulfill the divine will, when we are doing acts of kindness with these things, then we are fulfilling their purpose for why God put them in this world. And every one of us, every individual is responsible for elevating the divine spark that is associated with your spiritual roots. The objects containing those sparks become your personal physical possessions. Whether it's money as we discussed that you're giving to charity and caring for those less fortunate than yourself. Whether it's a talent that you possess that you could sing, that you could play music, that you could paint art, whatever it might be. Ownership represents the association between the soul and these divine sparks. When ownership of an object is transferred, it indicates that the sparks contained in the transferred object require the intervention of more than one soul in order for it to be elevated. And so, sometimes it might have multiple people, multiple parties involved. And this Kabbalistic insight, this idea, I think, adds a whole new meaning to the concept of what is ownership. It tells us that ownership is not just uh, this utilitarian convention that economics sees it as, but there's a more inherent relationship between property and the proprietor. The law's function is not to create the concept of ownership and then you know, delimit the conditions in which it applies, but rather the law reveals this reality and response to it. It's telling us, indeed, everything we own, God gave it to us for a reason, for a purpose, and we have to maximize our mission in this world by utilizing those things for the divine purpose for which God entrusted us with these items. Any questions? IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And I just want to refer back to another Mishnah, one from last week's chapter, from chapter 2, the Mishnah Yud, the 10th Mishnah. It's a little bit of a long Mishnah, but there's just one part of this Mishnah that I want to focus on. It says here, what is an evil path from which man should distance himself? Okay? Says Rabbi Shimon, a person who borrows and does not repay. For one who borrows from man is as one who borrows from the Almighty. And we find the same idea expressed in the Torah itself. When the Torah discusses some of the laws which pertain to a person who violated the integrity of his fellow's property, what does the Torah tell us in chapter 5 of Ayikra? Let me just quickly read the verse to you. Hashem spoke to Moshe. If a person should sin and commit a betrayal against God and lie to his fellow concerning an article left for safekeeping or a business venture, God forbid, a robbery, a withholding of payment or finding a lost object, all these the Torah mentions, should he sin and be guilty, he must return the theft that he has stolen. Not only that, says the next verse, he should pay back the principal and shall add its Fifth part to it. <laughs> what's, a, what's a fifth? 
and give it to whom he is owing. And the Torah says, not only that, to the person you, that, that was stolen from, you're going to pay them back, right? Financially pay them back. Pay them back what was taken. But more than that also, on top of that, you're going to pay back a fifth. But more than that, there's also a sin committed against God. And therefore, the person should bring a guilt offering to Hashem. And furthermore, we know that on the high holidays, we say this often in our prayers, right? That a person will be forgiven, God says, Before God, you'll be forgiven. Meaning, if I committed a sin against God, great, God will forgive me. Kosher is between me and God. Shabbos is between me and God. But stealing, that's between me and my fellow man. And that's something God cannot forgive me for. The verse clearly says, it's not only a sin against God, but it's a sin against the fellow human being. And therefore, only once I have made um, justice, I have repaid, I have done whatever rectification is necessary between me and my fellow, only then can I bring the sin offering to God, because obviously I also transgressed the will of God here as well. So Rabbi Akiva was one of the great Talmudic sages. He points out something amazing about this verse. He asks, why does the Torah consider him to have committed a betrayal against God? And you know what he says? Because in defrauding your fellow, you're also defrauding the third party to the dealings. And that is Hashem. Okay, so there's the double side here. On the one hand, we're committing a sin against God when we, uh, uh, against the individual. But I don't think it's just against the individual, it's also against God. And obviously people are wondering, how is the, how are you defrauding God if you steal from a person? What has it got to do with God? And you know, this is one of my pet peeves. And I hear this question oftentimes. You know, you look at somebody who looks pious, righteous, religious, and Yet their behavior sometimes proves otherwise. And we have to remember, there's two sides. There's, if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's our relationship with our fellow, that starts off with our relationship with God, but then there's also a relationship with our fellow human beings. So the question is, how is the offender, defend, uh, how is a person defrauding God? And at the most basic level, we could say that besides for stealing, Besides for taking from somebody something that is not ours, right? Something that rightfully belongs to that other individual. The, the other insight, the, the other aspect that we have to be aware of here is that, remember, God said to us, do not steal, okay? But Rabbi Akiva takes it even further. And he says as follows, that although not a single earthly soul may be aware of what really happened. Nobody knows. But the Almighty is omnipresent. God knows, God witnesses, God sees. The Gemara relates a story about this person who was traveling and they were going through these luscious vineyards or orchards and he sees some delicious tasty fruit and he says to his friend, you, to the driver, you take a look, you see if anyone's watching, well, I'll get us some lunch. And as he's about to pick a fruit off the tree, the driver says, someone's watching, someone's watching. The driver gets scared, the, the, the fellow gets scared, the rider, and right away he 
right away he says, you know, he, he reacts. He, who's who's watching? He doesn't see anyone. So he's about to take the fruit again, and again he says, someone's watching. Someone's watching. This time he looks around. And says, I don't see anyone. What are you talking about? And he reminds him, you know, God is always omnipresent. God is always aware. God sees what transpires, what happens in the world. We can't hide it, even though no one else sees. So now nobody knows what I'm doing. I could lie and brazenly do whatever it is and deny what I've done. But remember, you can't lie to the Almighty. So he says, the, the verse says here, the third party to their dealings. What does it mean, the third party? That there's another witness to this. And the Almighty sees. So what the, the Mishnah, what the teaching of this is that the common denominator between the three is, you know, we have a business partnership, but remember, God is part of that business relationship as well. And indeed, in you know, that, that's the case. The third, the three parties of the ownership, there's that relationship. Each is in fact the owner. So the Torah law is telling us that give back the object to its owner. Remember, the Almighty is one of the owners of whatever it is that a person helps himself to. So the thief is also exercising a logistical, if not a rightful ownership over it. You know, in addition to the fact that he's appropriated the benefits of ownership, taking something that's not his, but there's a legal element to this ownership as well. He is unconditionally responsible for it. For example, the stolen object is destroyed by an unpreventable act of God, right? So now, could he say he's responsible? Yes, the Torah says that the thief still has to repay the owner. Why? Because he has taken it as his own. He cannot claim that, uh, you know, your property is no longer in your existence. So this is the, this is the insight that Rabbi Akiva teaches here that when we say the world and everything in it, the thief, in addition to doing wrong to his fellow, literally committed a betrayal against God because he took something that's not his to take. When we say here not his to take, what I mean here is that, like I said earlier, God gives us what we need. Well, he's part of our plan to exist. So, yes, I know the thief could argue, well, God's ownership of the world is, is, you know, transcends whatever rights my fellow, myself, my claim. Right? No matter who exercises physical control over the object, it's still in the possession of Hashem, because God has the whole world. You know, maybe you could say that I'm uh, violating a commandment of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, by, by taking something, right? But the world and all that is God's. So, how could you say that all I'm doing is taking something that's God's and moving it around to another place. But Rabbi Akiva tells us that God's ownership of the world is indeed violated when we encroach on someone else's possessions. Because when we look at this verse, the Gemara tells us, Hashem everything, that everything, the whole world is God's. Uh, what does it say? God's glory fills the whole world. So Rabbi Akiva tells us that he acquired and bequeathed his world. Meaning it's Rabbi Akiva saying that God's possession of the world is for the sole purpose of granting 
us ownership. God gives us, God wants us to be partners in creation. And that partnership of us in creation with God means that we have to play our role fairly. Okay, so just to, just another insight or two is uh, another Talmudic sage put it this way. Everything was created to serve me and I was created to serve my creator. God created the material resources of the world so we could utilize them to serve him and that is why God acquired a world. And this is why God continually provides his creationship of the world. Why? Because we God wants us to be here. In order for us to be able to make use of all the resources in accordance with the divine plan, each person's rights over his share of creation has to be defined and safeguarded. So God's bequest of his world to man is the very essence of his relationship to it. And this is the purpose of God's choice to create and own the world. We call this concept Dirabatahtonim, which means God wants us as partners in this world with Him. And God calls this world my garden, Basi Ligani. It's not a jungle, it's not a, you know, there might be weeds in the garden, but each of us can fix those weeds. And if we've made mistakes and if we've done things that we know aren't appropriate, then we have to do what we can to fix it, to rectify it. Okay? And that's why the Torah says, if a person will sin and, be, and commit a betrayal against God, by lying to his fellow, if you deceive your fellow, the verse is saying clearly, as Rabbi Akiva illustrates, that we're betraying God as well. And that's why God says, I cannot forgive you until your fellow has forgiven you. That's why when it comes to the high holidays, which is, by the way, less than 100 days away, we prepare not only about with our relationship with God, but also our relationship with our fellow human beings. We work on fixing all those. No need to wait for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We could do that today. We could do it every day. There's nothing wrong with picking up the phone and calling somebody and asking them how they're doing. And if we've wronged someone, to make it right, to do what we can, to fix that, to rectify that situation. And I know that sometimes it takes a little bit of courage to do that. But clearly, we realize that when we wrong our fellow, we are wronging God. So, very simply put, the mission is telling us, yes, everything in this world belongs to Hashem. But God gives each of us our domain, our specific chilek of the world. And it's for us to uplift, to refine, and to elevate. So each of us has the responsibility, and the privilege, I should say, of refining our chilek, our portion of the world, doing our part, doing our job, doing what we can to make this world the beautiful divine garden that it ought to be. And where we see a flaw, where we see a problem, the Baal Shem Tov taught us, it is for us to not focus on the oi, but rather to ask, how can I turn it into joy? You know, that's what we try to do here at Chabad Seniors, which is exactly our shim, less oi, more joy. What's the point? The idea is, you know what, oftentimes people have what to complain about. And if you look around, there's always what to complain about. But Hasidus tells us, when you see a problem, a flaw, a shortcoming, it's your responsibility to find a way to say, how can I fix this problem? What can I do? to make it better. And each of us has a way to do that. So I hope we all learned something that could make ourselves and our world a better place 
in so many ways.